Chapter 24 of Studies in Stagecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton. Chapter 24 The Function of Dramatic Criticism. If I were asked to name the one thing that the drama in America stood most in need of at the present moment, I should say dramatic criticism. In order to cultivate the finest flower of any art, it is necessary to coordinate to a common end the complementary activities of the productive spirit and the critical spirit. The theatre in America is at present fairly healthy on the productive side. We have at least one native dramatist whose work is worthy of serious consideration. We have several native playwrights of real promise. We have many able actors. We have three or four great stage directors. And we have one or two managers who import the best plays of other nations and make it possible for us to see them on our stage and to compare them with our own. But our dramatic movement is deficient on the critical side. We have at present no dramatic critic of the first rank, none who may be classed, for instance, with Mr. A. B. Walkley of the London Times, and we have only three or four writers who seem to be making any earnest effort to achieve the purpose of dramatic criticism. It is not that our newspapers and our magazines devote too little attention to the theatre. They devote, indeed, too much. But this attention is not critical in spirit. Nearly every newspaper in the country gives up many columns every week to comment, of some sort, upon the theatre, and many of our magazines conduct departments that are devoted to the stage. But the more we read the newspapers and the magazines, the more we shall perceive that the great majority of our professional commentators on the theatre are not, in the true sense, critics, and do not even aim to be. In fact, the one feature of their writing that strikes us most emphatically is the absence of any endeavor or desire to fulfill the function of dramatic criticism. Concerning the function of criticism in general, there can be, I think, no question. It was stated once for all by Matthew Arnold in one of those luminous phrases which, as soon as they are formulated, seem to have been graven forever upon granite. He defined criticism as a disinterested endeavor to learn and propagate the best that is known and thought in the world, and thus to establish a current of fresh and true ideas. From this we may derive the definition of dramatic criticism as a disinterested endeavor to learn and propagate the best that is known and thought in the theater of the world. The critic incurs a double duty, first to learn and secondly to teach. To study in general the theatre of the world, and in particular the theatre of his own place and time, in an unfaltering endeavour to discover what is best in the current drama, and then to teach the public what is best by making clear the reasons why. His ultimate responsibility is not to the creator, but to the public. It is not his duty to teach Sir Arthur Pinheiro how to write plays, supposing that were possible. It is his duty to teach the public how Sir Arthur Pinheiro has written them. But to do this, he must first have learned, and learned from the creative masters of the art. 
the first mark of the true critic is therefore the eagerness to learn criticism requires as a firm foundation both a broad and general culture and a deep particular equipment for the work in hand the critic must be cognizant of life for the drama is a visioning of life and how can he judge the counterfeit presentment unless he knows the zest and tang of the original he must be familiar with the aims and methods of the other arts for how else can he judge that complex product a modern acted play where all the arts do seem to set their seal he must have studied thoroughly the drama of other times and lands for by what standard otherwise can he appraise the merit of the drama now at hand and all these studies should have furnished him material from which to derive inductively the principles to guide him in his judgment these principles which are empirical always and never a priori he should build into a body of belief and this philosophy of the dramatic art he should expound whenever necessary to the public and should illustrate whenever possible in each particular review so much for the necessity of culture let us turn now to the other necessity of a particular equipment for the work in hand the art of the drama is a living thing and like all living things is growing as a consequence the philosophy of the drama in any period of criticism can be regarded only as pragmatical a principle will serve only so long as it will serve a new invention like electric lighting for example may quickly revolutionize the making of plays and require a consonant revolution in the principles of judging them the very next play to be produced may demand of the critic that he shall broaden or materially alter his body of belief for let us insist again the purpose of criticism is never to announce dogmatically how plays shall be made for that would be absurd but always to explain how they have been made and to elucidate the reasons why the critic therefore can never rest upon his oars he can never be certain that what he knows already has equipped him fully to appreciate the next important dramatist who may appear therefore he should keep his mind forever fresh and open to receive and to evaluate each new impression with all its possibilities of principle the dramatic critic must be a tireless theatre-goer to be a theatre-goer is not considered by most people difficult but to maintain a tireless and searching mind amid a making of many plays to which there seems to be no end requires a moral power which ranks only a little on the hither side of the heroic and there are other moral qualities without which a writer cannot serviceably fulfil the function of dramatic criticism however broad his culture however thorough his equipment the first of these is sympathy and this quality is rare the critic must exercise an eager catholicity of taste he must appreciate not only what he likes but also what he does not like provided that there be any adequate reason why other people like it in his tireless and impersonal searching for the best he must equably evaluate whatever is good of its kind in any type of play he should judge a given work in accordance with the endeavor of the author he must find out what sort of effect the author intended to produce 
and then determine to what extent he has succeeded in producing that effect. Ibsen intended a certain effect in Hedda Gabler, and if that were a new play, it would not be at all fair for the critic to prejudge it adversely because that effect is totally different from the effect, for example, that Shakespeare intended in As You Like It. Though a man may write of Shakespeare with the eloquence of angels, he is still an inefficient critic unless he can both learn and teach the merits of Ibsen, who has made some stir in the theatre of the world with work of an entirely different order. The critic should have no prejudices. Although he may have suffered through ten successive bad plays by a certain author, he must always be ready to recognize the merit of that author's eleventh play, if it surprisingly surpasses its predecessors. Authors sometimes grow up. Bought and Paid For is written by the author of An International Marriage. I beg his pardon for recalling it. And Kismet is the work of the same playwright who perpetrated The Cottage in the Air. The sympathetic critic should never give up hope. Even Mr. Israel Zangwill may ultimately write a good play if he lives to the allotted age of man. Since the endeavor of real criticism is to learn and propagate the best, it is evident that its function is not destructive but constructive, and this is another reason why the critic must be richly endowed with sympathy. There seems to be a prevalent impression that the business of the critic is mainly to make adverse remarks concerning plays that happen to be bad, and this impression, utterly fallacious as it is, is emphatically detrimental to the cause of criticism. It is not the proper function of dramatic criticism to waste good thought upon the subject of bad plays. Most bad plays would die a natural death if they were merely let alone, and the critic should ignore them. His duty is to discover what is good, and to explain why it is good, and to do all in his power to make the good prevail. This is more than enough to keep him busy and to ask him to explain why a bad play is bad, is to impose a superfluous task upon his patience. From the point of view of the ideal of criticism, it is surely a mistake for our newspapers to devote an almost equal amount of space to the review of every new play, irrespective of the nature of its aim or the quality of its execution. When a bad play is produced, it would be better to review it in some such terms as these. Last evening, a play called Crime by John Smith was produced at Brown's Theatre with Mary Jones in the leading role. The audience seemed to like it, or seemed not to. There is nothing in it that requires critical consideration. Sometimes, of course, when a bad play has succeeded and is being patronized by the public in preference to several better plays, it may become the duty of the critic to prove that it is bad in order, by this negative procedure, to help the better to prevail. When great numbers of innocent theatre-goers seem to think that every woman, for example, is a work of literature, it becomes necessary for the critic to protest. But even this duty is of minor importance compared with some constructive task of criticism. The task, for instance, of explaining clearly to the public in what ways the thunderbolt is a masterpiece of craftsmanship. Our magazine writers are granted this great advantage of our newspaper writers, that they are permitted to ignore unworthy work, but they seem to be expected to devote more space to the consideration of plays that have succeeded 
than to plays that have failed. This latter editorial requirement leads them often into error. Any question of financial success or failure is impertinent to criticism. Criticism seeks the best, and for the critic it is more important to write at length about a good play that has failed in a night than about a poorer play that has crowded the theatre for an entire season. But an even more important moral quality that is required of the critic is the delicate faculty of disinterestedness. He should always tell the truth as he sees it, for the sole and self-sufficient reason that that is how he sees the truth, and should remain impervious to any ulterior consideration. But it is very difficult to be disinterested. Some years ago, when Mr. Belasco was fighting against the organized power of the so-called theater trust, our reviewers seemed to find it difficult not to help him in that worthy cause by praising all of his productions, irrespective of whether they happened to be good or bad. Our newspapers seem to have a habit of judging certain plays according to what is called their news values, instead of according to their quality as works of art. The Garden of Allah, for example, which was so bad a play that it should have been dismissed by the critic in a single summary paragraph explaining the essence of its ineffectiveness, was talked about for column after column, because the scenery was expensive, or the theatre used to be the new theatre, or the camels were real camels, or the Arabs were imported from the desert, or Mr. Waller's salary was high, or any other of a multitude of reasons beyond the ken of criticism. Meanwhile, Mr. Charles Kenyon's profoundly sincere and moving play entitled Kindling was allowed to linger along with a very little notice, because it was not supposed to have any news value. The disinterested critic will not be influenced by that fetish of editors and publishers whose name is what the public wants. If the public invariably and infallibly wanted the best that is known and thought, there would be no work for criticism to accomplish. If the public wants the Never Holmes and does not want the Thunderbolt, that is the very reason why the critic should ignore the noisy show and write a dozen articles to explain the merits of Sir Arthur's artistry. And in the pursuance of his labor to help the best art to prevail, the critic should never for a moment consider whether or not the public is likely to enjoy the things he has to say. He should never write for popularity, he should always be inconsiderate of himself, and this is perhaps the finest flower of disinterestedness. The final mark of the true critic is the eagerness to teach. Every great poet is a teacher, said Wordsworth. I wish to be considered as a teacher or as nothing. Concerning this conception of the poet's function, there may be some question, but I do not think that anyone can doubt that every great critic is a teacher. What other word than this so aptly fits a writer whose endeavor is to propagate the best that is known and thought? It is the critic's privilege to teach the public what he himself has learned from his tireless study of the works of the creators. The theater-going public is not tireless. It lacks, because it is a crowd, both culture and equipment. It is deficient in appreciation, in poise, in sanity, in judgment. It needs the service of a critic to estimate for it the value of its own experience. And the dramatist also needs the service of the critic to elucidate his message and explain his merits to a public that otherwise might miss the aim of his endeavor.
The critic acts as a mediator between the artist and the multitude, explaining the one to the many, gathering the many to a fresh and true appreciation of the one. This point, that the critic must be considered as a teacher or as nothing, seems to me to be, in any high view of the question, unassailable. And yet this is precisely the point that is missed in all but a very little of that vast volume of writing concerning the contemporary theatre which pours from the presses of our American newspapers and magazines. Most of our dramatic columns and departments seem to be edited with the idea that the function of the critic is not to teach, but to entertain, not to think, but merely, heaven knows why, to be facetious. The critic of painting is not expected to be funny about Velazquez, but the critic of the drama seems to be expected to be funny about Ibsen. Of course there are times when the most effective way to teach a certain truth is by laughing very hard. Consider as an illustration Mr. Chesterton's bracing habit of leading us to laugh our way into the very presence of his God. But there are also times for giving over laughter and removing our hats decorously, in the presence, say, of Maurice Metterlink, the persevering triviality of the treatment of the drama in our press seems to be due to the fact that the majority of American publishers have misconceived the sort of interest that our public has begun, laterally, to take in the dramatic art. Our drama is no longer a thing to joke about. Serious works by serious-minded playwrights are being set forth, with adequate acting and exemplary stage direction by serious-minded managers. These works are being patronized by serious-minded people. The mere fact that thousands and thousands of people all over the country pay their money for several successive years to see the witching hour proves that our American public is not only willing but eager to take an intelligent interest in our best dramatic art. These people, and their name is Legion, must be willing also to listen to serious dramatic criticism. Our publishers, for the most part, are a tremulous lot. They are beset forever with the fear, to use their own phrase, of talking over people's heads. They do not dare to teach for fear that nobody will listen. But the heads of those who read about the theater in our various publications loom far higher than these publishers imagine, and the danger of talking over them is not nearly so considerable as that other danger, never thought about, apparently of talking under them. The general reader, that genial gentleman who pays our printer's bills, does not read about the theatre unless he is interested in the theatre, and an interest in the theatre is in itself an indication of intelligence. Any person who cares at all about an art must be capable of caring earnestly about it. Any intelligent person must be willing to think seriously concerning a subject that he cares about. Why then should we treat our theatre-going public as if it were incapable of thought, and eager only to look at pictures of pretty women and read facetious trivialities? Our theatre-going public has given ample evidence of its willingness to be taught. What else than this is indicated, for example, by the growth of the Drama League of America, in less than four years, to a membership of 50,000 in over 40 different states, by the mere fact of joining the League? These people have practically said, we wish to learn the best that is known and thought in the theater of today. We want to patronize the best plays. Tell us which are the best plays and tell us why. If we had a single great dramatic critic, like Francisque Sarsi, for example, 
the answer to these people would be easy. The Lee could answer, read his writings, read everything that he writes. But instead of this condition, we observe a multitude of people asking eagerly to be taught and finding nobody to teach them. And this is the condition that the great majority of our editors confront with an apparently unalterable conviction that the theatre-going public does not want to be taught, but wishes merely to be entertained. But not only is dramatic criticism wanted by the theatre-going public, it is also wanted, it is indeed desperately needed, by our best creative artists in the drama. The dramatist who has written a good play does not need to be told why it is good, but he does need that the public shall be told why it is good by someone on whose judgment the public has learned to respect. We are at present passing through a period of overproduction in our theatre, and amid the multitudinous bewilderment of presentations, the average theatre-goer is left at a loss to know which plays to patronize. Hence the intervention of the critic is absolutely necessary, in order that the best plays may be assisted to prevail. Not until the function of dramatic criticism assumes among us the dignity and the authority which it exercises now in Paris, shall we be at all certain that the best plays will prevail, and the poorest plays go under. And how, unless we can be fairly certain that the best plays will prevail, shall our promising dramatists be encouraged to stride forward boldly in their art, to conquer new provinces of truth in the expectation of a new appreciation. For as Arnold said, it is one of the functions of criticism to prepare the way for new creative effort by establishing a current of fresh and true ideas. The drama in particular is an art that derives its inspiration from the attitude of the general and public mind. You cannot give a drama of ideas to an audience devoid of them. But to an audience that has been taught to think, you can give a drama that makes it think profoundly. The critic, by teaching the public to appreciate what is best in the plays it has already seen, may prepare it to appreciate what is best in the plays that our advancing dramatists will set before it ten and twenty years from now. Thus, criticism not only follows, but precedes creation. The critic is not only an expositor of the best that has been done, he is also a herald and enunciator of the best that is to be. End of chapter 24 End of Studies in Stagecraft by Clayton Hamilton